Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and welcome to our show. Whether it is your first time joining us or this is episode 121 with us, we welcome you and thank you for spending a little bit of your day with us today. And you're hoping, and we hope that you're staying healthy and safe. COVID still continues to be a challenge with the new Delta variant here in the States and elsewhere across the world uh, continues to be a challenge impacting so many. And so uh, wishing you health, happiness, as always we do on the show. This episode is really, really special, and I'm really excited to share this one with you, particularly today as our guest, Michelle Lee from the Asian American Journalists Association, as well as the Washington Post. Uh, has just landed in Tokyo as she has made her move to take on the new role as the Tokyo and Seoul Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. And so we get to hear the background of somebody who has uh, been a critical part of the storytelling uh, impact through the last six months, particularly as it pertains to bringing up the stories from our community that you probably would not have heard otherwise in leading the organization, an Asian American Journal Association, whose members are doing critical and, and such important and necessary work uh, to bring our stories up to the forefront. So, Michelle, wishing you all the best as you quarantine in Tokyo and keep yourself safe and best wishes on your new post. And so thanks again for joining us here today on episode 121 of The Asian Americans. And let's get to my interview with Michelle Yehi Lee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Asian Americans. Hope you are staying well and hope you are staying safe and healthy. Uh, as we continue to see, hear, and listen and learn about a lot of the things that are causing us uh, a lot of strife, a lot of pain, a lot of grief here, as, as we continue to deal, not just with COVID, but a lot of the, the violent acts and hate crimes and things against the community members that is really, really hard for us to process. A lot of what we see and hear in mainstream media, particularly American media, I don't think would be the way that we receive the news. Would it not be for friends of ours uh, who are journalists who cover these things, not just from a content perspective, but from an extremely nuanced contextual perspective. And so uh, really excited to learn the story and, and have this discussion about her career and her story uh, with Michelle Lee who is many, many things. You may know her as a reporter for the Washington Post. You may know her as a president of the American Journalists Association. Um, but to me, she is somebody who has really done our community such an amazing service this year, particularly in getting the stories of the people whose stories otherwise, one, would never be told, but more importantly, in the way that they would have been told, because she is who she is as a Korean American woman. And so, uh, Michelle, welcome to The Years Americans. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? <laughs> I am hanging in there. I'm doing my best. <laughs> well, first of all, congratulations on your new gig. I think it's it's a little bit special. So share with us uh, what, what the new job is and what, why you're so excited to, to take that role on. Yes, I will be the incoming Tokyo Bureau Chief of the Washington Post, um, covering Japan and the Koreas, so both North and South Korea. And I'm really excited. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of a dream come true. I, you know, I think it's a part of the world that I've personally been invested in, obviously, just because of who I am and and have had an interest. And I think that I can uniquely bring my perspective and lived experience to the job. Um, I was looking back at who the past correspondents were at the post in this role, and I realized that I'm the first Asian American to cover. Uh, Japan and the Koreas for the post. So when I realized that, I was like, 
what are the opportunities that I can uniquely take advantage of? Like what, what can I do in this job because of who I am? Um, and I've been trying to think a lot about like, what are stories that uh, I can tell? What things can I see and what things can I um, tell on behalf of those countries, those cultures um, and help Americans learn about the diaspora too. So I'm really excited. Um, I'm in the midst of my move planning. I'm supposed to go to Tokyo in the next couple of weeks. I don't know exactly what day, which makes moving really hard. <laughs> but uh, my motto this year is lean into the chaos. So I'm just trying to embrace the chaos. And, and, and leaning into the chaos you have. Before we go on, you mentioned something that made me chuckle ironically, because so often the stories of Asians in this country and the world have been told not by us. It's always been, you know, again, when we think about who's had the privilege to be in certain rooms, there's been a lot of news this week, as, as we record here during the first week of June, about department heads of large institutions, academic institutions that study different parts of the world, particularly Asia, that are headed by white folks. And not to say that they're not qualified, but let's think about how early did you have to be a student to have earned your PhD and to have these opportunities? And are you doing it with the cultural nuance and the specific perspective and the you know context that you and I would a little bit differently, coupled with the fact that we don't want to be pigeonholed into covering just the Asian stuff or Hey, you know, call Michelle. We got a you know we got a Korean story to cover, right? Which we want to because we know that we can do it better than anybody else. But we don't want to be that person. My story is a little differently because I just leaned into the whole Asian American thing and I said, "F it, like this is all I'm going to do." But how do you balance that? And and you know, has that changed the way that, or has that changed the way you see your job and the cultural component to it? That's a really good question. That's a huge tension for Asian American journalists. And I think one that we're starting to really grapple with in a meaningful way, you know, for a long time, um, like Connie Chung has talked about this too, where being a Chinese American woman was a liability for her in the workplace. Like she can't hide it. So she had to just not really mention it. And there are a lot of Asian American journalists who have felt that way because of precisely what you said, which is a potential for pigeonholing. We want to show the complexity of who we are as journalists and Asian Americans. But if you become the one Asian American journalist who's always pitching Asian stories, then you can risk being overlooked for other opportunities. Um, and, and you're right. like It's not to say that and other people who are not Asians can't cover this story. They absolutely can. There are really great journalists out there who have done it well. But for a long time, our narratives have been dominated through other people's viewpoints and stories and lived experiences. And I think what we're kind of all coming around to and in the midst of coming around to is that we can reshape and reframe our narratives and we need to own the narratives of our countries, of our diaspora, and try to tell the more nuances that have been missed over the years. And I think that's what I'm excited about, about this moment, that it's not just me going to Tokyo uh, thinking about those things, but it's a lot of different Asian American journalists across the country who are dealing with this now. I actually hear from a lot of Asian American journalists now who are like, you know, I didn't really think about me being an Asian until the past like year or so. And I am starting to realize that, you know, I put my my Chinese name, my Korean name in my Twitter bio. I am starting to see the strengths of it. I always saw it as a liability, as a weakness, as something to try to hide. And that is a big shift that I'm seeing. And I hope that this leads to real change 
among Asian American journalists of how we view our own identity and the strengths of that rather than just the weaknesses of it. I love that. I I mean, same, right? And I think so many people, not just in journalism, but just to be out there. I wasn't born Jerry. Like I was named after the stupid mouse because uh, we moved here when I was eight. I, I've often thought about what I want to be known as going forward, right? Because Jerry Wan is now, you know, people know me as that, right? Like a, a personal brand and, and Michelle Lee as well. But like, what does that mean? Like from an authenticity perspective, you know, it, it's basically a, in an attempt to assimilate, our parents gave us these names, hoping that life would be a little bit easier. I have two kids and, you know, their primary names are American English names. And like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Right. And I think it's also balancing sort of what we know to be unfortunately true about the world and society and business of familiarity, ease and assimilation that helps, but also at what cost. When we talk about that, obviously we have to accept and assume and admit our level of privilege that allows us to be able to talk about the fact that we can, you know, have our Korean names or initials or something on our names without fear of professional risk or other things like that. Tell us about how the Lee family became Korean American. I think a lot of how we feel about ourselves is dictated by uh, when our family moved here, to where, under what circumstances. And so share with us a little bit about your early years of your life and, and how your uh, family became Korean American. Sure. So I was born in Seoul and my family and I left when I was about seven years old. Um, and I grew up in Guam. So my dad left to Guam first because he was settling into his new job. And so my mom and I went to stay with family in Warren, Ohio, which is a really small town in Ohio, um, kind of near Cleveland. And so I spent, I like went to first semester of first grade in Korea because it starts in the early year, like February to June or something. And then I moved to the States and I did another semester of first grade because the fall semester started. And then I did the second semester of first grade in Guam. So my mom and I went to Guam after my dad was settled in. And it's it's so interesting thinking about my dad's first six months there, what that must have been like. I've recently been thinking about it a lot because I remembered seeing a photo of my dad from when he first moved into our new house. It was like a pretty small house. I remember there being really crappy carpeting that my mom hated because you don't really have carpet in Korea. And so my dad like didn't have furniture. He just had to work. And so he used the carry-on luggage that he had brought as a dining table. And he put a sheet of newspaper on top of it and laid out like panchan on top of it. And he was eating. And then like um, someone took a photo of him inside the house who was like helping him move or eat or something. And uh, so my parents just, they built their lives in Guam and uh, my mom was desperate to get out of that house and move into a bigger place with no carpeting. So when, when we did, it was a big day and uh, my parents actually still live in Guam. And I grew up there until I was, um, I went to college. I actually spent some years in middle school living in Saipan, which is another island um, near Guam. And we traveled back and forth to Korea and Guam um, and the U.S. sometimes. And then we, uh, and then I left Guam when I was 18 and went to college at Emory in Atlanta. And I still go back home to see my parents, go back to Korea to see my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. So that's, yeah, that's been our path. Uh, Guam, that's where we're from. That's awesome. You know, we, we had a, um, one of our more recent guests, uh, Emmanuel Han, who uh, is, is a photographer, also grew up in Saipan and in, in that part of, you know, the world. And I think that's 
that Asian American, that Korean American experience is so different, right? Because it's America-ish. Also, uh, for folks who don't know for a very long time, I don't know if it still is, that was a part of the American territories that certain Asian countries like Korea could visit without actual American tourist visas. And so there was a more of an influence of tourism and sort of, I think, the uh, the intersection of these different cultures, which I think is is fascinating. You know, obviously, we just got done celebrating APAM. And often in our very privileged East Asian bias, sometimes we forget because it's so complex and not our lived experience for the most part, the Pacific Islander component of it. But I think you being Korean born, moved here, and I think that has given you so much unique perspective. Like, how does that change the way that you see the identity overall as an APA bucket versus perhaps what the other Asian Americans who have not had that PI experience, how does that change the way you see the world? Absolutely. I I do think that the experience that I've had is almost like a microcosm of the overarching fact that we're not a monolith. That I, when you look at me, you probably would never have thought that I grew up in Guam. And um, and you may look at someone who looks just like me and they may have no idea what Guam is. So it's just, you know, the way we look and the stories that are kind of assumed of us are just not usually the case. And I think I am kind of like the an example of that. Uh, so yeah, Guam is considered a soft landing for Asian immigrants because it's so close to Asia. It's uh, three hours from Japan by flight. It's four hours from Korea. Um, for context, it's eight hours away from Hawaii. So we're closer to Asia than to Hawaii. And so we have a huge Asian immigrant population, lots of um, Filipinos, Japanese, Koreans, Chinese, um, and then the Chamorro, who are the Guamanians, the native. Um, and then there are people from the military. So there are some white people, some black people who usually are affiliated affiliated with the military. So my life growing up in Guam, I did not appreciate that diversity until I left. So in high school, I had a group of girlfriends who there were like five or six of us. It was me, another Korean girl, Japanese girl, white girl, Filipina girl, and a Chamorro girl. So we just grew up like eating each other's food, going to each other's houses, meeting each other's parents, learning phrases that the parents were using. So we would walk into each other's homes. And even my like my white girlfriend would come in and be like, Annyeonghaseyo to my mom, because she just knows how to say it. And she would love eating my mom's like kimbap and kimchi and everything. And um, when I brought it to school, you know, they loved it. And I did not appreciate that until I got to college. Mm. I went to college and I realized wow, that is a very unique experience. Most people (laughs) don't have that diversity growing up. And I did not realize what I had then. And that really shaped really the rest of my path as just hoping to show that diversity matters and living immersed in each other's cultures and appreciating is actually really rich and fulfilling and and beautiful experience that we all can have because America is supposed to be very diverse, supposed to be accepting of diversity. So that very much um, shaped my appreciation for that sort of lived experience. And I, I certainly did not even come to know it until I, I moved you know, to the States. I mean, there, there's so much richness in the story that you just shared, Michelle, because I think you're right. I think when somebody looks at your, your byline or your resume, you know, and they're like, oh, where I went to Emory, she, you know, 
worked her way up the journalism chain. And now she's, you know, not only working for a reputable global name, but also doing an international assignment. Like that doesn't tell your whole story. And I think when we talk about so much the we're not a monolith and we can't judge a book by its cover, even within the Korean American community, which in the States is about 2 million, it really brings into really nuanced focus of some of the stories that you've been able to tell this year and how Korean Americans by and large are portrayed even within our own communities in one particular or a, you know, a specific number of ways. In your path to becoming a journalist and storyteller with this really unique and awesome, diverse background and you know, growing up, when did that become something that you thought was possible? And when did you want to be that storyteller? Yeah, I actually started in journalism when I was 15, working in a professional newsroom. I was, you know, I love to read and write as a, a teen. And one of the extracurricular activities that I uh, wanted to do was write for the local newspaper, the Pacific Daily News. And they had this teen section that is produced by and run by teens of Guam. So basically you have this, you have a weekly section that runs on Mondays. It's run by a, a team of teenage interns. And we have an editor of the team who's also a teenager. And, you know, we are, we're all overseen by real adults in the newsroom, but it was a very teen generated um, experience and, and activities. And um, I joined that team when I was a sophomore in high school and I did it throughout high school. I just realized like, I loved it. I'm outgoing. I'm curious. I get bored easily. So it all kind of fit with my personality. And, you know, how great was it that I could just go to the mall and approach random teens and be like, what do you think about this new fashion issue? Or what do you think about this new movie that came out? Or this, you know, the way your school is changing, I could just ask them anything. And then wait, I could also shove a camera into their face and take a photo and they're fine with it. That's cool. And I could tell the people of Guam what I learned. That's cool. And I just loved it. And I ended up doing that for three years. I interned at the paper for during the summer after I graduated from high school. So I, I grew up in the newsroom and I went to college and I was like, all right, I've done the journalist thing. You know, I've done the newsroom thing. What else is out there for me? But I found myself just being drawn back into the college paper and, and missing the feel and the energy and experience of, the, um, of journalism. And so I ended up becoming the editor of our college paper. I interned at different um, news outlets and then eventually realized that this is where my heart is. And one thing that really drew me to it, it wasn't like there was any aha moment about like, oh, this is a calling or whatever, but... I came to the realization that if I stayed in this role, in this industry, whatever a newsroom job is or a news telling job is, I will always meet new people, learn new things and keep growing. And those are things that really mattered to me. And I would always have fun and I wouldn't have to always be in an office and I have more flexibility. And those aspects really drew me to this role. And I've, you know, given thought to law school or PR or teaching, or if I can do science, I would have loved to become a doctor, but that was not my calling. <laughs> I mean, how much of that do you think was the, the audacity to dream and, and to have those opportunities in a community where diversity was just the way of life? I, I think about how many stories that we've told, not just on this show, but for so many of us who were either implicitly or just explicitly denied opportunities based on the way we look and because of you know socioeconomic privilege or just pure racism 
that so many people were not allowed in their early years in high school or, you know, even in college to pursue certain things. And, and I think that is so awesome in your situation that you didn't believe in those same limitations. I, I think about somebody asked Sandra Oh, same similar question. How did you dream to become an actress? And she said, at least where I came from in Canada, I saw myself on TV. And I think a very American story is that we don't see ourselves, that we don't read, you know, newspaper articles or see ourselves on TV. Like the guy that I grew up geeking out was Michael Kim because he was like the midnight sports center ESPN2 channel guy, right? And geeking out over seeing him on TV because he looked like me, but also fully understanding why he had the midnight spot on the second channel and not the primetime spot. And, you know, so I, I think that is awesome. And I know, you know, now as we sort of talk about the intersection of your profession and your identity and community, that you, specifically you, have given so many of us a renewed sense of belief, even in media, the way that stories are told, because there are stories that only you can tell and only in the ways that you can do it. And so, I mean, first, thank you for doing what you do, because as, as journalists often do, you have to deal with the stuff that we all do, the pain, the trauma, the grieving, but also somehow this unfair expectation that you show up, leave that quote unquote at the door as if we can and to show up on camera or start writing or, or start sharing stories almost as if that didn't happen because the job goes on. And I know, although a lot of people just sort of use Atlanta as this turning point for Asian American journalism to say, hey, we need to tell our stories differently. That wasn't the first, nor will it be the last. There's always been this challenge and this struggle between you do, like you said earlier, Michelle Yehi Lee wants to be the best journalist, period. But she also happens to be Korean American and there's things that she can say and rooms she can get into and people who are willing to talk to her that won't talk to a white person, that won't talk to somebody, anybody else but you. And so how has that been? You've been involved with the association, the Journalist Association for a very long time. You, you head it now. But when I talk to other journalists' friends, every single person points to that group as without them, I would not be here where I am, not just for the professional networking and helping each other along properties, but just the fact that this is a place where you can have the conversations that you're not having at your office. And just having that, our version of sort of the country club aspect where we can be us. Because your first professional assignment or job was in Phoenix, Arizona, which, I mean, I have friends, I have family that live there. So I've been out there often and sort of understand what it is like to be out right. there. Not the most diverse place overall. And even more so, the media, uh, and because they have to cater to certain demographics of that geographical area, not the most diverse minded or the most open minded of, of things. When, when did you realize that you had to sort of infuse the identity and the community piece into not instead of being a great journalist? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is the idea of seeing possibilities and dreaming because I'm not limited by the visuals of what's possible for me. I think that's so true. And I actually, I don't even know if I fully realized that until you talked about it. I was like, yes, you're right. <laughs> that was an element that I didn't even have to contend with because everyone else looked like me or I was used to their culture. They were used to mine. 
Um, and I, w- I also have to say that I was blessed with parents who let me be whoever I wanted to be. They never told me what I should do. Um, the only thing they worried was that I would have a steady job and that I could, you know, stay employed. And even if I didn't, then they'll be like, I'll take care of you. It's okay. Just do what you love. And they let me fly. And um, that's something I've been always blessed with. And they still don't quite understand what I do, but they appreciate that I love it. And that's what matters to me and what matters to them. Wait, but you have a very easily braggable job because you have things that your parents can point to, right? Yeah. Like bylines and articles and videos. Yes. Yeah. They understand what I do. They just don't really, well, they stopped reading my stories after like, you know, the first couple because they're like, that's too complicated. I don't really feel like translating it. And I just, I I trust that you're doing a good job. Um, And when I was doing political fact checking, they definitely did not understand what I was doing until I was like featured in a Korean outlet about political fact checking. (laughs) And then I sent that to them. And that was like, two years into my job and they're like, Oh, this is what you do. It's great. Uh, but anyway, Look, um, that, that's the, that's the secret for people that are listening. Yeah. I don't know about other, other, uh, ethnic communities, but you haven't done anything in your life until the Korean newspaper covers you. <laughs> then your mom can take that to church and then it's game over. That's so true. But until then you can be on Forbes or whatever. <laughs> None of it matters. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, so yeah, my first job out of college was in Phoenix, Arizona. I I worked at the Arizona Republic and, you know, I was like 22. And I remember the first, one of the first experiences I had on the job was um, going to a local government office and they said, oh, you're that new Oriental girl at the Republic. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm not a vase. I'm not a rug. I'm Korean American. Um, Yes, I'm Asian American. And I just, I, in that moment, did not know how to deal with that. And I remember feeling a little shamed because I was called Oriental and I didn't have a good rebuttal. I didn't have a thoughtful response. I was just like, uh, I'm not a rug. And I think about that a lot because, you know, I think over the years, I've definitely developed how to conduct myself. But at the time, I did not know that my identity would be thrown back at me in so many ways. But at the same time, I really craved my community. I craved my people. And it was not the most diverse place in terms of East Asians. You know, there are a lot of um, Latinos and Native Americans there, but not East Asians and with a tiny Korean American community. But I found my community there. I got connected with Korean Americans, um, the small group that there was. I got to know them. I, you know, got involved in like the Korean Cultural Center and stuff. And I, I made friends with some people in the Korean community papers, the Korean community media, the people who put out the free papers at H Mart and at restaurants and at church. And I just became friends with them and stayed in touch with what's going on with the Korean community. And at times when I can, I tried to elevate what was going on um, into the Arizona Republic's coverage or find stories that I could try to localize. So when Kim Jong-il died, I went to talk to people in the Korean community to understand like how they were feeling, children of North Korean immigrants, people who are have grown up in South Korea and emigrated, what their reaction was. And it's a story that no one else in the news are pitched but me. But I was just like, shouldn't we be asking the people of, you know, the Koreans of Phoenix how they feel? I'll go talk to them. And I, I did that story. There was a time I um ethnic media, the Korean community media person tipped me off to a story about how South Korean um, baseball teams were switching their spring training facilities from Florida to Arizona, 
So they were heading out to Phoenix and no one else knew about that. But the teams had contacted him. And so he called me and he was like, hey, are you interested in like doing the story? And I was like, yeah, that's a big deal. Not only is spring training a big deal in Arizona, but like the fact that South Korean baseball teams are coming to the U.S., um, that's really great. And also my dad would love this story because uh, he's a huge South Korean baseball fan. And I I went out to the facility. I watched them. I did interviews. The guy who was helping facilitate it uh, knew that my dad was a fan. So he took photos of me interviewing the coach, and which I sent to my dad and he loved it. But I ended up scooping MLB.com and ESPN because no one else knew that the South Korean teams were moving. And like, then it ended up in like the home pages of ESPN and MLB yeah. because I reported in the Arizona Republic. And those experiences taught me that there are definitely connections and rooms that I can get into that if I can find them and leverage them, it can be so powerful for journalism and the stories that are told to the public that would otherwise be ignored. And that is why the first person I called when the Atlanta shooting happened was the Korean media out there mm. to learn more about the community and how to report. And, you know, it took me time to realize what my uniqueness is. And it took me time to find strength in it. For a long time, I, I did feel like if I'm going to be, if people are going to keep pointing out that I am Oriental or that I look like a young Asian or that I'm an Asian girl, then how can I make myself look older? How can I dress whiter? You know, I was trying to think about those things. And then eventually I came to a point to realize no, if I embrace it, there are ways I could channel it. And if I can accept that they will always see me differently, then that becomes a baseline of like where they're coming from, where I'm coming from, and I could like move past it. But it definitely took me a long time to navigate that. I, I think our subconscious pursuit of wanting to be white in this country as the bar of success or what even great looks like Dion was on the show and she said when journalism school, they pointed, they showed videos of Walter Cronkite and other white men and saying, that's what a good journalist looks like. And you're like, wait a minute, I can't be that physically. And, and so how do you own your own voice? And, and newspapers by and large in this country uh, now are not owned by local people. They're owned by other interests. And so there, there is a little bit of a challenge there too on, on sort of what they want and what stories that they want feature because it is not democratic as people think it could be sidebar I, I think my cousin had something to do with that baseball stuff because he, he's a baseball scout and, and runs uh, some baseball stuff in Korea but <laughs> he went amazing. to but he went to um he, he went to Phoenix Christian so he has we have still family oh. out there yeah um all all four of my cousins on my dad's side all went to ASU and so a lot a lot of Phoenix roots on in, in our side of the family oh that's so funny so yeah I mean Speaking of not feeling seen, so that's why I joined the Asian American Journalists Association mm. when I was a freshman in college, because I was like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. I want to keep going into journalism, but I don't know how to make it as an Asian, as a Korean American Guamanian kid in, in the States with no connections to anyone. Um, so I, I just, I looked up a group of people who might be able to help me, who might share my experiences. And AJ had an Atlanta chapter, has a great Atlanta chapter still. I got connected with the local chapter. Um, Richard Louie at MSNBC was one of the first working journalists I met in the States. Mm. And he, uh, so I've known him since I was 18 and he was working at CNN at the time. And I was like, whoa, there's a person who is Asian and 
uh, he's on TV. That's pretty cool. And he's in Atlanta. That's pretty interesting and exciting. And I just got to know more journalists through AAJA. I eventually got a scholarship through AAJA to go to the convention, the national convention. And I met like over a thousand people who look like me and who shared my experience <laughs> and who like get it, who just baseline get it. And they cared about diversity. I cared about diversity. It just made sense. And um, that is the network that I have really grown to appreciate. And they've all made me a better person, a better journalist, better friend and better leader. It's I, I just I could not have my career without AJ uh, because it's helped me at every step of the way. We not only help each other feel seen, but we help each other so much behind the scenes. Like when I was interviewing for the post, the AJers at the post helped me navigate that process. And they gave me like, you know, tips and advice and just how it works and how to navigate it. And that sort of help just means so much when you're one of many people interviewing for a job, you know. I love Richard because we both got our MBAs at Michigan and now doing nothing remotely related to our degrees. And so, uh, yeah, he's he, he's an inspiration in, in more ways than one for me. Shout out to Richard. Uh, if you're listening, you should also consider getting his book, uh, Enough About Me, uh, which has been doing really, really well and really proud of him. I think storytelling comes in so many different ways. Obviously, I, I do it through the podcast medium. You do it by writing articles and, and sh you know storytelling, but uh, books, and particularly all the mediums, I, I think all the media, I, I think, need to be more diverse to give our children the ability to walk into a Barnes and Noble and, and see names like theirs, to turn on the TV and see faces like theirs, and even buy an old school newspaper or click on a link and see that it was written by people. You know, perhaps I'm a little bit more hyper aware of it, knowing, you know, doing what I do and then, you know, sort of being exposed to what I am all the time. But I always want to know if our stories are being covered by our people, not to say that other people can't and not to say that we should only cover our stories. But as you said, there's a context piece that cannot be duplicated. And if you're not a Korean person, if you're not an Asian person, you can get degrees on degrees and training on this stuff. But there's something, even a resonance and a feeling of comfort of even people wanting to share their stories with you. And then you share the story of, of being in Arizona and then having access and building relationships with other storytellers. And I, I want to brag on you a little bit because maybe you don't feel comfortable doing it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Like I went to your page first when Atlanta happened because I knew you were connected to people who would do it the right way. The Journalist Association's website crashed when the media guidelines went out on how to tell our stories in the proper way which was both exciting and sad because why weren't you prepared for this moment without travesty happening? You went down to Atlanta and just parked yourself there for a week just to get to know the people and, and to tell the story in the right way instead of a big news van just showing up to a crime scene and shoving cameras in their faces. The sharing of the victims' names was done differently by the Korean media than it was done by most American media outlets. And so there's this nuance of wanting to share our stories. I don't want to ask a leading question, but how how did you experience that being there? Because it felt like from an external perspective, Michelle, almost that your world had stopped too, and that you went down there and said, nothing else matters in this moment than to share the stories of these people whose stories aren't going to get out in the way that it should, because people are not properly equipped to do so. And I don't think other media networks sent people like you down there, at least as far as 
what I observed. What was that process like for you? Yeah, there were a couple of things that were going on there. So I would say just in general, AJ was able to do the work that we did and continue to because we have been here for a long time doing that. And we've been preparing and doing it on a a scale that maybe was not as prominent as the Atlanta response, but we're celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. And our mission has always been to increase visibility of APIs in news and in news coverage and make sure that the community is covered accurately and fairly. When the Atlanta shooting happened, we all like went to sleep being like, we're going to need to do something. Our community needs us. This is a big story. We got to show up for our community and our journalists. I woke up the next day and the first thing I did was just put together a message for the membership because our journalists, you know, it's been a tough year to be an Asian American and a tough year to be a journalist and a really tough year to be Asian American journalists. And I actually had seen a message right before I fell asleep from a, a member who DM'd me and said, I am just getting up from my early morning shift. So it was like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And they said, I feel so shook. I'm going to do my job. I'm going to be a pro. I'm going to be a pro, but I am so shook. I don't know how to handle this. And I, I went to sleep looking at that. I woke up thinking the members need us. I need to be there for them. So we first thing we did was put out a statement, just letting our members know that it's going to be a hard time. They've already been having a hard time, but it's okay to be human not weak to feel sadness or be shook. And that's okay because they're not alone. That's the first thing we did. And that was so important for us. After that was real community response, journalism response. We knew that we had to help shape the news coverage. We didn't know exactly what the message was going to be until we saw news outlets jump to quote the sheriff when he said, you know, the suspects said it wasn't racially motivated. We saw the news alerts and we're like, this is our message. We know exactly what we're going to do because (laughs) all of us, Uh, We're Asian Americans, we're Asian American women, many of us uh, on the team. And we're like, actually, if you knew the history and the context and the experience of API, especially API women in this country, then you immediately know that racism and sexualization and sexual violence are all linked together. You can't just put them in separate buckets. And so we knew that we had to help newsrooms contextualize that and understand that. And when I saw the news When I saw the website crash, when I saw the response, I knew that there was a real problem in the way news is being covered in this moment in in our newsrooms. I knew that that meant that there are not enough APIs in leadership. There are not enough APIs making editorial decisions or people who are trained to even know who to ask or think about the history or the context. There was just a huge knowledge gap and a historical gap and that we needed to be there for them. So I was, you know, mainly focused on that. And then when I went to Atlanta, I just, I did there to do my job. And I knew that I had an opportunity to contribute to the understanding of the moment and the community in whatever way I could. So in that moment, I was just focused on rising to whatever other people would expect of me right now. And that's all I, that's all I did. And, you know, I'm really proud of the work that AJ did. We had dozens and dozens of people pitch in for our our Atlanta response. And I think we showed up and we will continue to be here, you know, beyond Atlanta, all the follow-up stories, the FedEx uh, shooting, um, the Sikh community, um, we will be here and we will continue to do the job. And I think one of the things that we're taking away from this experience is really the need for us to empower our journalists to 
frame and own our community's narrative and to help each journalist realize that they are a change maker, not just a stenographer, but a change maker and a person who can be a narrative teller and a narrative shaper. And I think that's a new way of thinking for us as an organization. And that is going to be our next journey to help all of our journalists have the tools to do it with nuance. We're doing a panel this coming week about API and Black solidarity because there have been a lot of journalists within our own community who want to talk about the history of anti-Blackness among many AAPIs. They want the tools and the vocabulary to be able to talk about it. Some of them are kind of scared of approaching the subject. They're worried about amplifying some of the stereotypes. So we wanted to be there to do that, be that resource for them. So we're working with the National Association of Black Journalists to have that conversation. So I think the next frontier for us is making sure that all of our journalists have the tools to be able to get into the nuances and do that narrative shaping that we now are, I think we have to do. And this is what we need to do for not just our community, but for the stories that are being told in this country. We need to be a part of shaping them. It's really important, I think, for people to start in our community to feel and to really believe that us being who we are is an asset, is our superpower. I think nobody is going to argue against merit if everybody has a fair chance at merit. I don't think anybody is arguing against the best person for the job in, in so many cases. But especially in storytelling, to ignore who you are and to discount the fact that people will forever treat you differently, no matter how hard you fight against it. And so why not lean into who you are going to be and do your job in a way that makes it so much more powerful? And there's really never been a greater time, in my opinion, than right now, particularly coming off of the most historic Pacific Heritage, Asian American Pacific Heritage Month that we've had where we are being invited to speak about us in places where we were never welcomed. And whether that is due to guilt or bullying or pressure or any of these things, we have to take this moment to really solidify our voice. And, and I really love that you're doing the solidarity event because that's a problem in our own community. And I think people have to understand that when we advocate for us, it's never really at the detriment of anybody else and it never has been, but it will never will be. Right. And I would also add that. So after our website crashed, after the Atlanta response initially, I found out later that our guidance was being spread to companies, to alumni networks, to like public policy groups. Um, it was being used by non-journalists to just understand the moment because they were lacking the framing too. And that is what made us realize, oh, this work doesn't just inform journalists. It actually informs mm. the different sectors of our society who clearly don't have the tools to even wrap their minds around what is going on in relation to the Asian American community right now or in the past. Maybe we can talk about you know, lack of education or uh, lack of stories or whatever. But what is clear that is that this sort of storytelling and educating is necessary and, you know, now companies are ask, asking AJ to come in and talk about what API stories are, you know, out there and how to understand. And we're almost becoming like DEI consultants for like major corporations, which was never like our original 
calling, but we're kind of, you know, trying to be a resource where we can. But I think it is, it is our duty, like I said, and it takes, the thing is, it takes a long time to have a Stefan get to where Stefan is now. It takes a long time for Richard, a Juju, Dion, all of them to get to where they are now. And we need so many more of them afterward. We need a pipeline of the future of Stefan's, future of Juju's, because it takes an entire operation and a massive pipeline to keep funneling journalists into these positions. Otherwise, we're going to have to redo this process in the next you know, 10 years or something, and we don't want to be there. Yeah, you know, I, and I'm glad that you are where you are to lead the organization and to be the voice for so many, because I have had the distinct pleasure of being in conversation with you and other members of the association when it comes to even helping younger folks find their place and find their voice. I am optimistic for the younger folks that are coming behind you because they're going to enter into a world and a situation that is far more welcoming. But to do this and go through this at an earlier part of your career must be so frightening. And so one of the things that I want to highlight, and we've done so on our Instagram and other places, is the fact that we have fundraised and you continue to fundraise to be able to provide mental health services, pick up the tab and give people grants so that they can go pursue self-care at their own discretion because this stuff is hard and we expect people to do things just without taking care of themselves. How are you staying safe and taking care of yourself through all this and and what can we do to help? Well, thank you, dear Asian Americans and you specifically, Jerry, for being so supportive and and your fundraiser uh, and your continued support. That means so much. Um, I think part of needing to feel seen and needing our community's stories being told is needing that sort of amplification from outside of journalists to show that there actually is a community of Asian Americans out there um, who are supporting each other. So I really appreciate what you guys have done and um, for supporting the mental health of our journalists and and amplifying our work. You know, at the end of the day, audiences matter, shares matter, clicks matter, traffic matters, viewers matter. And I think those uh, any help in amplifying our work would be really great. For me personally, you know, it's a really chaotic time in my life and I'm I'm just going to have to ride it out. It's okay. I have a good support system at home and uh, three animals around me, so they all take <laughs> care of me. <laughs> I work out a lot and I just get my anxiety out that way. Um, I'm okay. I think mo- mostly I'm concerned about the journalists who don't feel that support within either their homes or their newsrooms. A lot of our journalists are the are the one or one of very few Asians in their workplace. And that is incredibly isolating. Um, the night of the Atlanta, the night after the Atlanta shooting, uh, we happened to have a mental health session scheduled through AAJA. And we actually, we had to add therapists because of the demand that was increasing just throughout the day. And the thing that I just kept hearing was how alone and isolated and um, invisible that our members felt. And it, and it really pained me. And it, I, w- I don't want that to be the case anymore. I want them to feel more seen. I want them to rise and I want them to be in charge so that they can make it better for the journalists who come up after them. And so let's talk about the future and some of, you know, as, as we wrap here, the, the message that you want to leave to people, because your story, your personal story, Michelle, first, not finished by a long shot, but two, it is filled with a unique beginning that has really allowed for so many other people to believe that. They can be you, authentically you, and not feel ashamed about it and, and and write stories on a global stage with such prominence and make being you the actual secret sauce 
of course, you're going to go on to cover stories that have nothing to do with who we are. But when you have the opportunity to, it has to be you. And so whether it is, you know, uh, words of inspiration or hope or perspective, you know, help us wrap the show in the way that we always do by sharing a Dear Americans letter to our audience as you look to begin a new chapter in your life with reflection on what the last few months have meant for not just you, your colleagues, but for all of us. Share with us anything that, you know, comes to your mind. I'll start the letter. And if you could help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, no matter how you feel, know that you're not alone. You have power. You may not realize it now. Others may already be trying to knock it down before you even realize yours, but you have it. Find it and exert it. Do the internal work that you need to understand how your identity shapes your work, how it shapes your thinking, the questions you ask of others and yourself and the world, and channel that strength that you bring because you are uniquely you. And know that there have been generations before you who have fought to make spaces for you so that you don't have to feel alone, so that you don't have to be the one person doing whatever you're doing. But progress is slow. It can be incremental, but it's absolutely possible and it's worth trying. And when you get to that place where you're no longer alone, carve that space even bigger for the people who are going to come up after you. Thank you. And I'm sure you hear this a lot, but thank you. The work that you are doing um, as a leader in the organizations you belong to, as a voice for our community, but just being you and, and, the, share, and the stories that you share personally, we really appreciate it. We know that it's changing the way that we share our stories and is leaving an amazingly important and necessary impact on those of you who are going to look to you as the inspiration that they too can be amazing Asian American storytellers. So Michelle, best of luck in Tokyo. I'm glad that you get to be closer to your family and, you know, be able to create new memories, but also advance in your career and, and make us all proud. And thank you for being a good friend through all of these challenging times for me and for so many others. You're an extremely giving person and we want to make sure that we are doing what we can to take care of you and, and the things and people that you care about. So thank you. Come back soon. Take care of yourself and um, be well. I want to thank Michelle for jumping on the show and sharing her story with us. Really honored to have her uh, share her story, whether it is through her work at The Post or at the Asian American Journal Association. She is usually the one telling the stories. And so really nice and, and such a treat for us to hear uh, the stories of the people behind the story. Follow her on Instagram at MYHLee. Follow at AAJA Official, both on Instagram to get your latest uh, updates on what is going on in the world. Um, I think it'd be very awesome and unique to hear what is going on in Tokyo and in Korea, two countries that so many of us um, call home or so many of our parents and our communities call home. You can also follow Michelle on Twitter, where she is quite active covering the news and, and sharing out all that she is doing uh, with that. That is also at MYH Lee. You can follow us at The Years of Americans, wherever you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter. We are at The Eurasian Am. Uh, shoot us a note, hello at TheEurasianAmericans.com if you'd like to connect. And we encourage you to check out some of our other shows, including Chan Chi Show and Korean American Parenting. Uh, MB Agents is going to make a return here in the fall, so we get excited for that. And if you have not yet, and if you are a podcaster, if you are interested in learning more about podcasting, find our group Asian Podcast Network right on Facebook. Just search for us, and we'd love to connect with you. 
Thanks again so much for tuning in. It is an honor for me to host this show every week and to share our unique Asian American stories with you. Signing off on episode 121, this has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I wish you health, safety, and happiness.